Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have managed their dead throughout history. From barrels and burials to cremations and kurgans. We are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week we are talking about a brief history of the guillotine. Please be advised this episode contains discussion of decapitation, torture, capital punishment, public execution, violent revolutions, Nazi Germany, as well as mentions of rape, concentration camps, suicide, and capitalism. Now, let's get on to the show! So I'm going to warn you guys up front that it is a long and gory history full of murder, violent revolutions, uh, best laid plans going awry, the whole shebang. So do brace yourself a little. Who would have thought that a history of a beheading machine would have a gory history? I, I didn't know. I was unaware. <laughs> Well, we are actually going to begin our tour in the 1970s. Oh. Are we, we're going backwards through time? So we're going to start at kind of at the end, and then we're going to go back to some of the early precursors. So for this nonstop tour of famous guillotine sites and histories, we're going to start in the 1970s. We're going to stop by Halifax, England, and Edinburgh, Scotland to see some precursors to the killer we all know and love today. We're going to meet the very unfortunate French physician from whom the machine gleans its name and its absolute rise to stardom during the reign of terror in the French Revolution, the slight upgrades and modifications it experienced becoming the Fallbeil, or the Falling Blade in Nazi Germany, and finishing by returning to its last days in the 20th century. I must say this sounds like quite the exciting journey and I know next to nothing about guillotines other than they are used to behead people so i'm excited excellent well hopefully it lives up to your expectations i have no expectations other than to be amused (laughs) so we're gonna start out in the year 1977 what's on the radio but abba's dancing queen and jimmy buffett's margaritaville jimmy carter great songs (laughs) right jimmy carter just became the president of the united states Elvis Presley has just died, the Apple II came out, and the first film of an extremely popular and long-standing franchise was released and absolutely decimated all previous records for highest grossing film. Christia, do you want to take a guess at what movie that was? Ooh, is it Star Wars? It's Star Wars! Nice! (laughs) (laughs) And also in the year 1977, quietly, on a bleary-eyed Saturday morning at 4.40 a.m., The guillotine was used legally as capital punishment for the last time. In the United States. In the world. Oh. Legally. Keyword. Yeah. So this is the last lawful decapitation that takes place by any government in the world. And it happens in Paris, 4.40 a.m. on a Saturday. This is not a public execution, but it is the execution of Hamida Jandobi. Sorry if I pronounce it incorrectly. It is a Tunisian name. I don't know anything about Tunisia. Uh, but he was a convicted rapist and murderer. And he was the last person to be guillotined by the French government. <laughs> it is, however, not the end of the guillotine as the form of capital punishment in France. But we'll come back around to that. That was only like 44 years ago, by yeah. my math, if my math is correct. Yeah, it's I mean... not very long ago at all. And only 40 years since it was kind of stricken as a means of legal capital punishment. Just as a side note, one of my favorite things is when you compare two things that were actually alive at the same time, or like that were occurring around the same time, like the last the last decapitation by guillotine and Star Wars <laughs> in the same year. Yeah, and then, it's crazy. Like, You're like, whoa, those two things are so separate in your brain, but yeah. they were at the same time. Oh my god. Yeah. History, it overlaps in so many ways. And I think I was complaining about this earlier, that history is so full. Mm-hmm. There's so much stuff. History God, is infinite. Is, 
It is. It's absurd. Why does so much happen all the time? All day, every day. Everybody has a perspective. That's a little bit of everything. All of the time. A little bit of everything. All of the time. time. (laughs) Anyways, so decapitation is a means of capital punishment. Nothing novel or new. There, I think as soon as humans had the means to make blades heavy enough to do it, they were decapitating each other. (laughs) Earlier forms were typically sword, axe, you know, handheld weapons, and it usually took two or three blows to actually fully decapitate the victim. Mm -hmm. So there were were a number of decapitation machines that were built throughout history. There's references to them in a text, a fictional text in 1210. And we're going to look at a couple of the precursors, two of the notable ones. And we're going to start with the Halifax Gibbet. That sounds awful. (laughs) Yes, knowing what we know about gibbeting, the verb, you might assume that this is closely related. It is not. Actually, gibbet as a noun has a different macabre meaning. And so this gibbet was not in the Atlantic Canadian city of Halifax, Nova Scotia. That was my Uh, first thought. (laughs) Right? I saw the reference and I was like, we have a famous guillotine in Canada? We do not. It is the same place from which Halifax, Canada derives its name. But it is in West Yorkshire in England. So... The region fell very unusually for England under the rule of the Manor of Wakefield, where very old customs from the 1200s or so gave the Lord of the Manor the authority to execute summarily by decapitation any thief caught with stolen goods to the value of 13 and a half pence or more, or who confessed to have stolen goods of at least that value. Any guess on what the value of 13 and a half pence in even the 1650s is worth nowadays. Uh, like a hundred dollars. Couple hundred bucks, yeah. Take a, take a decimal point off. Oh. One dollar? Ten dollars? It's less than ten Canadian dollars, less than six British pounds. This is petty theft. Wow. So if I went in to McDonald's in the 12th century... And I handed this over, I could maybe get a small fries, is what you're saying. (laughs) Maybe, yeah. Maybe just that. And so this sort of law is thought to have been an extension of an Anglo-Saxon custom of infangthof. Infang the of is how it's spelled. Do I have any idea how to pronounce it? No. Old English is crazy. (laughs) It is. But it was a law that gave landowners the ability to essentially exact capital punishment on any thieves within the boundary of their land. It was pretty common in the 13th century when it was literally medieval England and, you know, full feudalism, classism is at a height, but it died off in most of England, right? There was a survey in 1278 that found that within Yorkshire, there were 94 privately owned gibbets or gallows. So any- Privately owned. Oh, jeez. Privately owned. So any means of public execution is technically a gibbet. So you could argue that, like, the cross upon which Jesus Christ was crucified is a gibbet. I didn't know that. Yeah. And a gallow is any frame, typically made of wood, from which objects are meant to be hung, often for the purposes of weighing them. So things like grains of sack were hung from gallows to weigh their value. Sacks of of grain? Yeah, stacks of grain. (laughs) You said grains of sack. Oh, whoops. (laughs) You have grain of sack? (laughs) So they were used also to weigh sacks of grain. Of course, these privately owned gibbets and gallows were not really for grains. They were for petty thieves. (laughs) And other trespassers. But it fell out of practice through most of England by, you know, kind of the end of the medieval period. But it held on in Halifax, in the Yorkshire Valley. There are a couple of arguments as to why this continued to be in effect, why the gibbet law continued to be enforced. One of the arguments is that because Halifax made most of its money and found most of its economic prosperity in the production of kersey, which is a an inexpensive and hard-wearing fabric that's usually used for military uniforms, and the last step of the process in manufacturing it is to hang it out on large wooden frames to dry. 
And the thought was that because it was all out there and it's the main source of economic prosperity in the area, that it was easy pickings for some unsavory types to come and basically steal your money off the line. And so that this was some sort of extreme deterrent. But there are other arguments that are like, no, this these are just zealous property owners who will kill you for stealing $6 worth of fabric. So the, the Halifax gibbet is also thought to be unique in all of England for the time. Uh, it continued to operate until 1650 when Oliver Cromwell was like, no, stop, stop it, no more of this. How it's different from the guillotine that we mostly know has to do with its construction. So it was 15 feet tall with a transverse across the top to secure it. Instead of like a large sharp blade, it was just an axe head that was fixed into the block. Same kind of pulley pin system. If you were being found guilty of having stolen animals, either the animal you stole and was recovered or an animal of the same species could be have the, the rope for pulling the pin attached to them and they would send that animal running to pull the pin to kill you. I definitely thought that was going to go somewhere else and like they were going <laughs> to decapitate the animal with the... <laughs> oh, God. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. That's what everybody wants to hear. They don't quite know when exactly the Halifax gibbet was set up. They know at least 52 people were killed with it um, because of the restrictions on like the area in which they could enforce these laws. There were actually two people that managed to escape into the forest. One of them foolishly came back to Halifax seven years later, was caught and executed. <laughs> Zealous landowners. This is going to be a theme throughout, I think. <laughs> so another precursor to the guillotine that was relatively famous and is fabled to have been inspired by the Halifax gibbet is the Scottish Maiden. I'm sorry Ooh. to all Scots out there. Right? And this is different from the Iron Maiden. I don't know why maidens are involved in so many murderous machines. But anyways, so when the sword that was typically used for executions in Edinburgh wore out, and the public coffers had to be used to essentially get a rental sword, a decapitation machine was commissioned for state use. And this was during the reign of Queen Mary of Scots. It was a little bit more flexible than the Halifax Gibbet. It was regularly taken down and like carried around town to the new site of execution. Oh, wow. Portable. Very portable, right? I'm like, that's very efficient. Um, I can see like an infomercial. <laughs> like, I can see like an infomercial. It folds up really easily. You could take it around town. Any execution. <laughs> Fast, Anytime. efficient, we'll bring it to you and take it away. Yeah. <laughs> And we know this because the the designing and the building, the commissioning, and then the accounting books kept regarding the Scottish Maiden were very well kept. So there's actually still record of them. So there's record of payment to like Blackfriars for taking this thing down and transporting it here and bringing it back. Or payments to the Scottish Crown from other districts that had essentially rented <laughs> the Scottish Maiden for their own executions. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, so this one, the first execution done with the Scottish Maiden took place in 1565, and it was last used in 1716. David Hume, the David Hume that we all kind of know of, claimed that the regent James Douglas, who's the fourth Earl of Morton, was the one who introduced the idea of the Scottish Maiden, having seen the Halifax gibbet in Yorkshire. Um, unfortunately, the fourth Earl of Mer Morton also fell victim to the Scottish Maiden later on, which is a theme we're going to see a lot, is the inventors of these things unfortunately becoming victims of them. Really quickly, I don't know who Hume is. You don't know who Hume is? Oh I my goodness. Know. Call David me an Hume. imbecile. I'm just... <laughs> David Hume is, is a philosopher in the capacity that I know, but he was also a politician and a poet from Edinburgh. He's one of the most like famous figures that came out of Edinburgh responsible for a lot of very influential writings. I can't think of the name of any of them off the top of my head because my brain is just full of guillotines. <laughs> but he's a, a very well-known figure from Scotland. Okay. I'm like, I could probably Google and give you more concrete information, but... <laughs> no, that's good. Thank you. Uh, I'm not literary like you. I know J.K. Rowling's from Edinburgh, and that's not much to say anymore. 
No. Oh, there's much better people from Edinburgh. For some reason, lots of relics from this podcast seem to be found in Edinburgh because after the last execution with the Scottish maiden, uh, they put it away. <laughs> they just like took it down and were like, well, we're not using this anymore. Put it in a dusty closet. Uh, and it was later rediscovered and then set up in the National Museum of Scotland, which used to be called the Museum of Antiquities. It differs a little bit in design in that it's got a lot more triangles to it, like support beams and stuff. It does look a lot more like, oh, you just slide this thing out of its box and pop it up. So this did not have the axe head then. This had the proper traditional guillotine blade that you think of when you see, that you imagine when you think of a guillotine. Not quite. This one also used an axe head. It was slightly different dimensions. So the... Hmm. The Halifax Gibbet used one that was specifically three and a half kilograms. The Scottish Maiden used one that was quite a bit heavier. I believe it was seven or eight kilograms. So it was still an axe head that was mounted in there, but it was a slightly different So was it structure. like just like a couple inches wide then? Like was it like an axe, like a woodcutter's axe? And it just yeah, was just... essentially on like an arm sort of idea? Yeah, it was just kind of wedged into the sledge of the machine, the part that would slide down in the grooves of the posts to do the decapitation. Right. So if we move a little a little farther into the future, we're still in the 1700s here, and we're going to visit a good doctor in France whose name I'm going to absolutely butcher despite looking up how to say it and trying to practice. Joseph Ignace Guilleton. I can say the last name, that's it. Dr. Guilleton. So when he was born, there's a legend surrounding his birth that I think sets a rather unfortunate tone for the rest of his life and, and kind of his work, his career as a doctor. And the legend goes that he was born prematurely because the screaming of a man being broken on the wheel distressed his mother so much it sent him, it sent her into labor early. Yikes. Jesus. Yeah. What a way so to being come broken into the world. On... <laughs> Welcome. It's the sounds of poorly done public execution. Because being broken on the wheel was one of the means of capital punishment in France, pre-Dr. Guilleton. I feel like it's like there's some like poetry to it, the idea of like a woman going into labor and screaming and intermixed with like the song of the man being broken on the wheel. But... Right? Yeah. And uh, I feel so bad for Dr. Guilleton. Like, and we'll see if you're on the same page as me when we finish hearing about him. So, French gentleman, fairly well-educated, became a doctor. And through his doctor training, he became an advocate for both medical and criminal reform and was absolutely opposed to capital punishment in all of its forms. He seems to have been a pretty well-liked figure as well and, and a fairly forward thinker. So he made several attempts to have capital punishment abolished. He was not getting anywhere with it unfortunately the french nobility boy they love a little bit of torture to death capital punishment because up until this point capital punishment via beheading was reserved for the upper classes specifically for noblemen and the clergy the first and second estates (laughs) Is that just because it was quick or like if you were lower class, you'd be broken on the wheel because fuck you, you're poor. Whereas, you know, you had a bit more of a clean death if you could afford it. I think that was somewhere along the logic. And I think there was some thing where they were like, oh, it's noble. We're nobles. Gonna go out like a noble. Um, But it might have also been the matter of hiring like an appropriately trained executioner to do it. So the the kinds of capital punishment that were available to the third estate, to the commoners and the citizens of France at the time, included being boiled alive, dismembered, hung poorly. This was prior to figuring out the correct like weight to length to drop ratio to break the neck when the platform falls. So it was just being strangled to death. (laughs) All sorts of fun, fun stuff. Right? So these were all terrible ways to die. And as I think we know pretty well, both historically and presently, the distribution of punishment is disproportionately levied onto quote-unquote lower classes. Poor folks, folks living with disabilities, 
folks who don't have access to the same thing. And the class system in France at this time was along a very hard line, right? And this is part of what led up to the French Revolution, which we're going to get to, because Guillotin's life overlaps almost entirely with the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror, and I'm sure that he is like, man, I wish I hadn't proposed that thing. And I'm sure because... as we learn about this, it'll have absolutely no bearing on things that are happening today. There will be no, no uh, reflection of today's politics in this history, I'm sure. Right, there will be nothing about this that'll ring true about today and go, wow, maybe we haven't moved past feudalism and medieval means of land ownership. Nah, but who it's knows? Not, it's not gonna happen. No, not, not this, at all. Not this. We're not, not gonna today. talk about <laughs> capitalism in this episode, not are today. we? <laughs> Never. Never. We're just gonna talk about the French Revolution, which of course has nothing to do with capitalism and classism and the withholding of uh, money and tax evasion at all. <laughs> but before we get there, we're going to talk about Dr. Guillotin's valiant and best laid plans for the first step towards the abolition of capital punishment. So he was pretty appalled by this, this slew of terrible means of death. So he proposed to the king, the government, the whole group of people who made the choices. I don't know a lot about political history, so excuse my, uh, vagueness, but he made a proposition October 10th, 1789, late 1700s, that any criminal that is sentenced to the death sentence shall be decapitated by machine alone. He proposed six additional articles as well, and they are as follows. First one, all punishments for the same class of crime shall be the same regardless of the criminal, i.e. there was no more special treatment for nobility and clergy, there was no more sh extra shitty treatment for poor folks. Nice. Everybody got the same punishment. That seems fair. Right? The second one. When the death sentence is applied, it will be by decapitation carried out by a machine. That's it. Everyone gets the machine. <laughs> I like Every time you say, like, death by machine, all I can think about is, like, super futuristic mecha suit with a sword for a hand. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Maybe somebody's gonna be in the future shooting guillotine blades. Oh my god. That episode of or the Futurama machine where it's like the suicide... Suicide the booth. Suicide, the suicide booth. I I mean, you, you're predicting some stuff that we're gonna get to, so... Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. It gives everything a nice rounded circular narrative, which I'm a fan of. Anyways, the third condition. The family of the guilty party shall not suffer any legal discrimination. Seems pretty fair. Yeah. The fourth. It will be illegal to anyone to reproach the guilty party's family after their punishment. Yeah, yeah like leave the family alone. The leave the family justice alone. has been served. Sins of the father. <laughs> yeah. Number five. The property of the convicted shall not be confiscated. So it won't be taken by the government. It'll go to the family. And the sixth, the bodies of those executed shall be returned to the family if so requested. Oh, wow. That's actually, like, not bad. He seems like a good like, good dude. Right? So, logic. Logic, right? Passion. <laughs> and he, part of why it took a little bit of time for his proposal to be accepted, it took two years, is because there was huge controversy about the fact that criminals' rights were being included or talked about at all. They had not previously been considered, and people were relatively upset about this. It does seem like it would uh, be a radical idea at the time. Yeah, and especially with what we know now about uh, body snatching and the way that criminals who received capital punishment were treated in other parts of Europe and in particularly in England, just to the south of Scotland, um, in Scotland itself, in Edinburgh, and across the sea, it seems pretty radical compared to that in which bodies were just being hoisted out of graves like errant fish. Mm -hmm. This like idea of errant. them being returned and not having their shit taken. Yeah, and like, then that, that also eliminates um, motive for wrongful incrimination and sentencing, right? If they can't... Yeah. They're just literally just killing a person. I mean, if I guess if you just want to kill someone fine, you get what you want. But if you're trying to kill them so that you can confiscate their cool shit, nah, nah, nah. That's not happening. Yeah. Yeah. So he was 
even though he he remained very opposed to capital punishment, he hoped that this would be a step towards a more humane approach because the guillotine was supposed to be fast and efficient, one clean break. So shortly after the proposal was made and it was starting to gain some popularity and attention because of the controversy, uh, in a follow-up assembly, Dr. Guilloton made the mistake of saying, or being misquoted as saying, Now, with my machine, I cut off your head in the twinkling of an eye, and you never feel it. The possessive use of eye with regards to the machine that was eventually produced, and which Dr. Guilloton had nothing to do with the design or the construction of this machine. As a result, it became known as the guillotine. The twinkling of an eye as a frame of time became a joke almost overnight throughout France. And they were like, oh, ha, ha, that's so very funny. The first Dr. Guillotin and his guillotine. The first meme. <laughs> kind of. Uh, <laughs> definitely feels like it got memefied overnight. This would, of course, come back to bite Dr. Guillotin in the ass, unfortunately. But by 1791, the proposal was accepted, and the first executions via the new guillotine were carried out in 1792. This, of course, um, coincides with the French Revolution, which is a watershed moment for a lot of Europe. It fundamentally changed the way that Europe functioned. Um, it also led into the Napoleonic era, because that's how the French Revolution ended. So we're going to talk about that briefly. So we can't really talk about the guillotine without talking about the French Revolution, because this is what it is most popularly tied to in common imagination. I'm going to give you a super quick overview, super simplified, because I myself don't understand a ton about the French Revolution, and I started researching slightly too late and forgot the French Revolution existed. So going into the 1700s, France was in a bad financial spot. It was waging war on multiple sides. It had been participating in the Seven Years' War. It had been somehow spending money on the American Civil War, which took place about 10 years before the French Revolution started. And there was the extravagant spending of the upper class in France. This was King Louis the 16th, XV1, 16th. Can I yeah. just make a small clarification? I think yes. you meant the American Revolutionary War. Not That's the Civil the War. One. Yeah. Yes. 1700s, not 1800s. Yes. 1800s is the Civil War. So France has spent a lot of money on the American Revolutionary War, as well as the Seven Years' War. There was the extravagant spending within King Louis XVI courts, him and his wife Marie Antoinette. And all of the nobility were having a, a gay old time spending everybody's money. This was also a period of time in which there was a very clear divide in tax brackets, if we can call them that. But essentially, the nobility and the clergy were exempt from paying taxes. So only hmm. commoners and citizens paid taxes. Sounds backwards. Right? Definitely isn't resemblant of anything currently going on at all right now no. about people with inherited wealth dodging taxes. Um, hey, on a, a completely unrelated note, did you know that Jeff Bezos recently went to space? On a big dick-shaped rocket because he's got in <laughs> friggin' uh, an inferiority complex, apparently. Completely um, unrelated. Completely, <laughs> completely unrelated. unrelated. It definitely doesn't have offshore bank accounts and is living extravagantly due to inherited wealth and title. And exploitation of his workers. Absolutely. Uh, definitely nothing futile about that. Oh. Anyway, back to the completely irrelevant French Revolution. <laughs> Yeah, and, and definitely has nothing to do with the relatively recent calls for the reinstatement of the guillotine for the rich. Um, <laughs> nothing to do with that at all. This is going to be a salty episode, y'all, apparently. <laughs> yeah, so the, the nobility and the clergy weren't paying taxes. And, I mean, commoners, there were plenty of commoners who were as wealthy or more wealthy than some of these nobility and clergymen, but because the nobility and the clergy got their tax exemption from either bought titles or inherited titles handed down um, from the predecessors or from the church. It wasn't really a line that commoners could cross. 
but at the time we're having issues with food shortages after some bad weather years. There's not enough money to support the country. There is also uh, the Enlightenment is happening at this time, and the idea of the divine rule of kings is starting to form. There's some cracks appearing in the foundation of that. There's a lot more people who are like, maybe King Louis doesn't have the divine right to rule. What the fuck is he doing up there, actually? What the fuck is he doing? Um, so the economic distress became so much that the king called the Estates General, which is an old school, ancient legislative body with three represented estates. The first estate goes to the clergy, the second estate goes to the nobility, and the third estate goes to the commoners, or the citizens. Despite doubling the representation from the third estate, so there's 300 nobility, 300 clergy, and 600 commoners, each estate only got one vote on an issue. And as the reason for calling this was to try and persuade the first and the second estates to start paying taxes to ease the economic crisis, it didn't go well. It did not go well. The government was worried about raising the taxes on common citizens and how that might lead to revolt. Unfortunately, you got to revolt either way. France couldn't borrow money from other countries or from banks. Its financial state was well known throughout Europe. It was in a sh- it was in the shitter financially. Terrible credit score. Terrible credit score. But essentially, the the third state was like, no, they should be paying taxes, and the fact that they aren't is a huge problem. And the fact that they can just straight up be like, no, we won't give you taxes. No, <laughs> absolutely not. This is our money. We earned it. I definitely started this company from my garage with no inherited wealth from diamond mines and child labor at all. <laughs> I Oh, I didn't inherit. I deserve this. This is my God-given right. All this led to the forming of the National Assembly, which declared sovereignty. This was the third estate going, essentially, fuck you. We want a constitution that protects us. And they swore an oath, I think it's called the Tennis Court Oath, that they wouldn't stop agitating until they achieved a constitution. Dr. Guillotin was actually in support of a proper constitution and they tried to jail him, but he received so much public support that they couldn't. Again, well-liked guy. Uh, But this essentially kicked off kind of the start of the French Revolution and things got crazy. There was fracturing um, within revolutionary forces, of course, because the third estate had huge disparity between kind of the lowest income and the highest income. And the bourgeoisie that's often referenced is actually the rich portion of the third estate. is not the nobility or the clergy. It's part of the commoners. So there was fracturing happening there. Of course, there's the famous storming of Bastille. There was a bunch of storming that happened. <laughs> People were like, fuck these guys. Uh, so the astronomical food prices, the exploitative feudal contracts, and the fracturing within revolutionary forces absolutely fed the flames. Shit went down. There was this huge roar of equality. There was constitutions being drafted, government changing hands. 1792 saw some of the first guillotine executions of people for their political beliefs. So the reign of terror went from June of 1793 to July of 1794. Some of the victims of the guillotine in that time include King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette uh, in 1793. In 1794, Maximilien Robespierre also joined them, as did about 17,000 other people. Oh, wow. Holy shit. (laughs) It was a lot. And part of the reason for this is that of course, within Dr. Guillotin's proposals, the idea was that this is the one punishment for everyone. And as a result, the guillotine became a symbol of radical equality. Equality in death was equivalent to equality before the law. So it was, it was a huge symbolic piece of the fight that was going on in revolutionary France. And public executions via guillotine were super popular. Super popular. It was like a theater show. There were vendors that were selling programs with the list of those who were to be condemned and killed that day. And the guillotine became a popular children's toy. You could buy a two-foot-tall working guillotine to behead your dolls and other small animals. Oh my god. 
<laughs> they were eventually banned because they were like, this is probably a bad influence. We should not teach all of these kids to be guillotine operators. Uh, I actually have a fun fact, I guess, that um, women would wear red chokers to, like, essentially as, like, an homage to their friends who had died by the guillotine. Oh, wow. So just in terms of, like, children having guillotine toys and, like, I guess that just goes to show, like, how much the guillotine kind of became a part of French culture yeah. in that, like, decade. Really, really embedded in the culture there. Mm-hmm. Very it much affected so. children's toys and it affected jewelry. Some upper class households even had like novelty guillotines at the dinner table for chopping vegetables and bread. Okay, I'm not not gonna lie, I would like 100% have that in my, in my kitchen. That like, would be so like, dangerous, but that's hilarious. Just guillotine apart your baguette. Perfect. A baguette is the perfect kind of bread to stick through a tabletop guillotine. Absolutely. <laughs> sticker idea um anyways (laughs) bread and the guillotine um that would be so cute (laughs) right oh my god but yeah so the, the guillotine was this huge symbol of revolutionary equality and even when the revolution kind of came to an end and napoleon bonaparte came in and started essentially became a dictator of france which really didn't achieve what the french revolution was after but that's something that's always up for debate but throughout the Napoleonic French Empire, the guillotine was still used as the primary means of execution because it was the only legal form of execution as per Dr. Guillotin's proposal. Sorry, I'm writing down the bread. That's okay. the bread <laughs> Subscribe to our eventual Patreon to get bread and a guillotine stickers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so Dr. Guillotin, his whole family petitioned the French government to be like, can you change the name of the machine? Please. Please. And the government was like, no, it's a great name. We're keeping it. So the entire Guillotin family uh, changed their last names. To what? I don't know. I think they deserve that anonymity (laughs) in history. And there are rumors that Dr. Guillotin was a victim to the machine with his own name. Oh, dear. And there was a Dr. Guillotin from Lyon who was victim to... The Guillotin, but it was not our Dr. Guillotin, who actually died at the age of 75 at home from a carbuncle. Don't look up a carbuncle on Google Images, it looks gnarly. Uh, Guess what I'm about to do. (laughs) (laughs) Stia is a rebel. Yeah, they're not great to look at, but I mean, he he did not die via Guillotin, he lived through the French Revolution. Um, He was at one point in prison because he was... Uh, he was sent a letter by a friend that essentially commended his wife and child into Dr. Guillotin's care because this friend was about to go into the guillotine. Uh, and when the good doctor was asked where to find these people, um, he refused slash could not answer. And so they threw him in prison. Uh, he was freed after Robespierre was killed. But he very much was just keeping his head down and trying to get through. He worked in a military hospital during the reign of terror being a good doctor he did also later in life he was very supportive of the discovery of vaccines uh and was on like a national board for the development of vaccines also not at all relevant to what's going on today not at all i overall i I think dr guillotin got the short end of the stick by having the guillotine named after him and having this machine attributed to him because it has such a high body count (laughs) But I guess it's slightly more humane than uh, blunt axes or rusted out swords taking multiple swings. Or any of the other torturous ways of dying that were reserved for the poor. I mean, uh, isn't that isn't that always the way is people create a thing that they think is wonderful and will solve problems. And then humanity takes it and defiles it yeah. <laughs> in I, some respect. Yeah, because I mean, decapitation machines, whether they're the Halifax Gibbet, the Scottish Maiden, the... Fallbile or the guillotine, the only thing that they love is crunchy human necks. Wow. Why would you describe <laughs> um, it like that? Because <laughs> I'm speaking for impact, apparently. Um, and it, it doesn't matter whose, it will cut everyone the same, including the person who was like, maybe this is a more humane way of slaughter or of capital punishment. I just don't want to listen to people scream and be tortured to death anymore. 
uh, because people should have rights to good deaths. But the reason I mentioned the it being used in the Napoleonic age in the French Empire is that Germany, or what is now Germany, was part of the French Empire for a time. And so it also became a fairly commonly used implement of capital punishment in Germany. So we're going to jump forward a little bit to Nazi Germany. So this was not something that I knew prior to digging into the research here, um, but uh, the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler were a big fan of the guillotine as a way of getting rid of uh, resistance and other enemies of the state who were citizens and not, not folks they could publicly throw in a concentration camp. So this is an addition to the concentration camp body count that was accrued during the Second World War. Uh, just in case there's anybody listening who isn't familiar with Nazi Germany, and I'm going to assume most people are, but just for clarity. Just in case. Nazi Germany from basically from 1933 until 1945. The time during which it was very much controlled by the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler. And it is it is not... Not all German citizens were in favor of Nazism. And Germany now has done a lot to... Not necessarily amend or atone, but to acknowledge and live up to and improve in kind of all respects from the the horrible legacy of Nazi Germany. So if you're out there and you say bad shit to German people about Nazi Germany, you're a bad person. (laughs) No caveat. It's rude, it's mean, and it's ill-informed. Moving on from that. um, (laughs) So... The, the guillotine that was used in Germany actually went through several iterations that were specific to Germany, and the decapitation machine became known as Fallbeil, or Falling Blade. Those uh, Germans with their very functional terminology, of course. I, yeah, there was also um, a name that didn't quite stick as well that translated to Falling Sword, which I'm like, that sounds pretty cool, but Falling Blade is very to the point. Yeah. So the, the straight-angled blade that we're most familiar with was specific to the French guillotine. And for a long time, the 1792 iteration of the guillotine is what was used all the way across the French Empire. Germany was like, we can probably improve on this, actually. You make this more efficient, more compact, easier to use. And there's a lot of different iterations of the German guillotine, of the Fallbeil. And you can look around for it. It's hard to kind of track the lines of each version of the decapitation machine. Um, but some of the rather distinctive features is that um, some of the fall biles had a kind of a block blade that had a U, like an upside down U shape cut in the bottom of it. Hmm. I'm assuming for uh, more humane all at once chopping. Who knows? <laughs> there was also a hand crank for raising the blade rather than having to pulley or to pull the rope. Um, and there was a blade guard as well, which essentially just boxed in the whole blade so that the condemned could not see it coming. They just had that awful tick, 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 tick with the crank. (laughs) Yep. And then that's almost worse. (laughs) Yeah. There was a couple of different iterations as well that had to do with splatter guards and different kinds of restraints. Tilting tables. There was an iteration in which you could actually just drop the whole table under a platform directly into a box. So you essentially just were like, chop box in the bo- body in a box, load the next one while you're cranking the blade back up. German's efficiency. Very, very efficient. So there were versions of this as well, where rather than being the 10 to 15 feet tall that the French guillotine was, were only 8 to 10 feet tall because they were made of solid metal. So that the extra weight of the, the sledge... Blade. Oh. Yeah, so the blade and the sledge became a lot heavier due to the use of metal, which accounted for the difference in height, right? You're not falling from as high, but you're a lot heavier, so you're still falling fast. And it was getting down to the point where they could do a whole beheading in under five seconds. Rapid efficiency. So when the Nazi party first rose to power, Adolf Hitler was actually kind of hesitant about using the guillotine in particular because he didn't want to kind of evoke images of the French Revolution, revolts, all of this crazy stuff because the position was still a little bit tenuous and he didn't want to totally betray public trust and get himself some French Revolution-style revolts by starting to execute citizens uh, publicly. Upper members of the Nazi party did manage to convince Hitler that he should use the guillotine just on the down low. Um, So he did. 
by the mid by the mid 30s, I believe they started using it in 1936. Um, he had 20 fall vials commissioned and distributed throughout the country to take care of uh, resistance members, enemies of the state. Uh, there's different numbers about how many people were killed via the guillotine in Germany. Some of the notable people that did fall victim to this were members of the White Rose. So this was an anti-Nazi organization run almost entirely by university students at the University of Munich, which was kind of the stronghold of the Nazi party. Notably, um, Hans and Sophie Scholl, who were founders of the White Rose. They were 22 and 25, as well as another member, Christoph Probst, were caught distributing pamphlets at school by a janitor. Um, they were just, just leaving them up stairwells for people to find. Janitor caught Sophie and Hans. Sophie, in a fit of pique, threw the rest of the pamphlets over the balcony, so they rained down on the courtyard below, which sounds like a great movie shop, but the janitor just dragged them into the school, turned them in, and the school immediately turned them over to the Gestapo, who, under questioning, also got the name of Christoph Probst as being involved with the distribution. And at the end of those two days, they were sentenced and executed via guillotine by Johann Streckbecht. And it said that the death sentences were handed out very recklessly, willy-nilly, having a gay old time, just spreading them everywhere. Up to 40,000 death sentences were handed out by Nazi judges, essentially. Sentenced to death by guillotine? Primarily, yeah. So the guillotine was the still the only legal means of capital punishment up until 1942, which was following the assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler. After that point, the um, the list of things for which you could be found guilty and deserving of death punish punishment and the number of people being convicted rose quite sharply, of course, because when you're a dictator, you don't want people trying to kill you. Um, <laughs> so there was a steep, steep, steep climb that we went up for people being sentenced to it. So they did add hanging with a short drop in 1942. And with the short drop is where it's calculates breaks the neck. Over the eight and a half years that they used the guillotine, it's believed that about 16,500 people were guillotined by the Nazi party in Germany. And 10,000 of those victims were during 1944, 1945 alone. Wow. Wow. So their numbers almost rival the reign of terror during the French Revolution. So it was quite a lot. Um, so, of course, after the World's War ended, um, the fall vial that killed the Scholl siblings and many of the White Rose members, as well as others, actually sits in the basement of a museum in Munich. And the museum has said that they will not put it up for display because this instrument of murder should not be used for entertainment which I think really speaks to kind of the the embracing and suffering from the tragedy of, of what Nazi Germany did to German citizens and the not wanting to put that on a pedestal in any ways. Because there's the Halifax gibbet, a reconstruction was put up on the base of the original one. It's a non-operational one. The original <laughs> Scottish maiden is for display in a museum, operational, but I'm guessing behind ropes. And then this one is in a basement and they are not bringing it out to light under any circumstance. That yeah. is and that is curious. Um, and yeah. I get their inclination to, to not to not let that happen. But there mm -hmm. are ways that you can present things in exhibitions and in exhibits that provide the proper context. And it's mm -hmm. a piece to educate, but not necessarily to entertain. But I really I understand the hesitation and the decision to just say no. Um, because it would have to be done very carefully, you yeah. know? Yeah, and I, I think there is some amount of conflict about it because they also aren't getting rid of it, right? They aren't getting... It's. I think it's the same as with most monuments of tragedy, like the A-Dome in Hiroshima, um, where it's, it's, a, it's a gruesome and it's a terrible reminder, but it's important as well. So I understand the struggle. The fall battle was also used by the Stasi, uh, which I believe are a type of secret police, in East Germany... Um, between 1950 and 1966 for secret executions. And I do not have a number because they were secret. Um, <laughs> secret, secret. Secret, secret. And so that kind of brings us back up 
to where we started, 1977, which is the last guillotine execution carried out by any government in the world. It was still the uh, the one option for capital punishment in France until 1981, which is when the capital punishment was officially abolished in France. But they just didn't use it between 77 and no. 81. Gotcha. Yeah, so there were people who were sentenced to death between 77 and 81, but they got rid of the capital punishment, so those people are spared the guillotine. And so despite all of this, there was a bill put forward in the state of Georgia in the USA in 1996. It was sponsored by the Georgia state representative Doug Tepper to replace the state's electric chair with the guillotine. Um, So there was at least one guy who was trying to bring it back. Of course it was unsuccessful. We do not want to backslide quite that far. There have also been a number of individuals a very limited number, who have constructed and used their own guillotines to commit suicide in recent years. It's a pretty small number because I think there are maybe more expedient options for people who are really committed to it. There's no good way to say it. It's, I mean, it's a lot of work uh, to build a guillotine. Yeah. But on the plus side, we aren't using them anymore. So They're now legally that sanctioned. They are not legally sanctioned. They are not a legal way to kill anybody now. Uh, Not to say that there aren't places that are still using guillotine-type machines. um, Because there's there's tons of iterations. Germany alone has a ton of versions. I think there was at least six or seven different kinds of German guillotine. But it's a history that trudges through a few more mires of terror that I initially expected because I was like, this is going to be straightforward. Someone built it. It was used here. It was used there. Here's what it replaced. But no, it actually had uh, quite a bit going on. And so this is why too, you see a lot of revolutionary forces or protesters, advocates uh, with a little bit more of an angry lean using the guillotine as kind of the symbol, right? Of, of equality by violence, if necessary. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, that's the uh, a brief tour of the history of the guillotine. I hope you enjoyed your trip. Uh, and I guess when you get off, enjoy Star Wars, because that just came out. <laughs> <laughs> so now that your head is full of uh, dastardly information and gory, spotty history, make sure you hold on to it. And thanks for listening. podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Tumblr at Mortals Podcast, and on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there. Not gonna lie, I would love a pair of guillotine earrings. I've seen them kicking around and I'm like, can I get a pair? <laughs> Whereby? Whereby? Shut up and or take a tabletop my money. Uh, guillotine for bread. Yes. Yes. Though I do have a I do have a cat, so maybe not. I just I'm like anything like that, I'm like, no, not anywhere an animal could set it off. No. I can't even leave knives on my counter anymore because he's like, hello, this is where I belong. He belongs everywhere. He belongs everywhere. And I'm like, stop licking toast crumbs. But you leave them there for him. Apparently.